0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I do wonder about our hot question of the day today, whether people will actually tell the truth and admit it or not, because it's about injuries that are suffered by people with their cell phones. So there's this U.S. study that examined the data of of thousands upon thousands of visits to the emergency room in hospitals right across the country in the United States and that study showed that 76,000 people suffered cell phone related injuries between 1998 to 2017. They actually are able to track it from the moment like smartphones showed up to how the injuries started to get worse because they actually list in these hospitals when you say, how did this happen? Well, I was walking, I was looking at my cell phone, I tripped, I fell, of course, and then, you know, you smash your face, you break your nose, whatever. That's all listed. And so that's the data that they scraped to find this out. So we want to know, and be as honest as you can here, please very simply, have you ever been hurt while using your cell phone? Did you hit yourself in the face? Did you were you looking at something on the phone and you tripped, you fell, you cut yourself, all that. All of that counts under the same umbrella. Have you ever been hurt while using your cell phone or been distracted by your cell phone? Do you go, yeah, it happens. Or no, just pay attention, people. Get off your phone. So go online to at CKNW or at Simi Sarah 980. Cast your vote on that. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com. Tell your story. We know they're out there. And you can call our buzzline six zero four three three one two eight nine nine. 604-331-2899. So fascinating what's been going on in Surrey this week. The question continuing, when will Surrey get its new civic police force, right? Lots of people are wondering that because they're debating over the budget about, well, they don't want to hire new RCMP officers, according to the councillors, until they have their new police force. But in the meantime, you are now two years into a process, if, if you count you know last year's budget and this year's budget and they're not hiring new officers. So obviously, if you want more officers on the road, if you want them on the job, you gotta get this thing moving, right? So when is that actually going to happen? Will it be next year, like Mayor Doug McCallum says? Or is that timeline too ambitious? Because that seems to be the indications from someone who would know. And that person is Wally Opal, former attorney general, former judge. He, of course, is the person who has been appointed to chair the provincial committee that will oversee the creation of this new police force. So it's essentially his job to make this transition happen. And he has been speaking publicly about this in the last 24 hours. And he's telling Surrey's mayor, listen, it's way more important, he said, to get the job done correctly. He said, this is a huge... Huge job. You are replacing the largest RCMP detachment in the country. Can't be rushed, he said. So a couple days ago, Mayor Doug McCallum was saying out loud, you know, talking to reporters, saying that he wanted the committee work to be done by December 11th, report written, and have it into the province. He said December 11th. He was fairly confident. He said that they were going to make that date. But then Wally Alpal said, whoa, 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 no, 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 let's back up this truck here. He said that's not going to happen on December 11th. He said it's going to be a few more weeks before the committee sends their report to the director of policing.
1: I'm the chair of the transition uh, committee, and uh, we are moving very quickly. We're making a lot of progress. But uh, the public needs to realize that what we're doing here, we're establishing a police force from the ground up. That necessarily means a lot of hard work and planning everything. So uh, we've been meeting and we've been very productive. Uh, our, step, our next step now is to uh, prepare a report for the Director of Policing. And uh, so that she's satisfied that all the work that's been done so far is, uh, is it's good that we can move on to the next step. And she will then uh, give that report to the, uh, to the Minister. That's the process. Uh, Mike Farnworth is a minister and he's ultimately responsible for uh, granting the permission and the authority to move ahead.
0: So there's a lot of pressure here too, right? Because I know the Surrey Board of Trade earlier this week expressed concerns about the level of policing right now in Surrey, worried that if they continue and this process takes too long, that there simply aren't enough officers on the roads there. So Wally Opal was also asked about the mayor's timeline, and even though he keeps talking about these dates, like December 11th to have the report in, uh, you know, early next year to get the police board appointed, start hiring, recruiting, you know, later next year, whether or not that. Is too ambitious, and here's what Wally Opal had to say about that.
1: Well, there's nothing wrong with having ambitious timelines, but I can tell you that uh, the uh, report that we're doing will not be with a director of policing uh, on the 11th of December. We haven't even met this week because there are people away, and uh, but we'll be meeting again next week, and uh, you know, we're we're now discussing. Uh, how to establish a police board that the, that the provincial government will do. The police board will then be responsible for selecting a police chief. The police chief will then be involved in the recruitment of members. Uh, the Justice Institute, the police academy, will be involved in training members. And then there'll be a, a union involved that will be invar- involved in the bargaining process for the new police. So, this is a very complicated area. Keep in mind, you know, the RCMP have been in Surrey since 1950, so you just can't replace them overnight. And uh, so we're working hard. I'm satisfied with the progress that we're making. Uh, the the committee that uh, that I'm chairing is absolutely superb, and so we're uh, we're moving and we're doing a good job.
0: Now I don't know about you, but that sounded like a very long list of things that had to be done, and we are talking big items here that need to be done. And nothing like that ever gets done quickly. The appointing of a police board. Well, I wonder, are they even collecting names right now to think about who or are they going to wait until the process begins before they do that? Then that board has to get together, have a meeting or two, then they start the process of finding a police chief. Well, that's going to take some time too. So it does sound like a very ambitious list of things, especially if we're still thinking this is going to get done by some point next year, like Mayor McCallum is talking about. So Wally Opal was also asked about when the committee's work might be completed. And he did give an indication of when the transition to this civic police force might be accomplished.
1: I, I can't say when our report will be finished, but it won't be that long. We started in, uh, in uh, September uh, we missed a couple of months, but uh, we made we made up good ground, and uh, so we're moving. And uh, but you know we're into the Christmas season now, and and everybody knows that it's uh, more difficult to get people together. But we have a meeting next week, and we got very productive meetings. I go out to Surrey one uh, one day a week, and we have good three-hour meetings, and so we're moving. We're uh, uh, I'm satisfied with the progress we're making. Okay, and and how quickly do you think we could actually see? members of the Surrey police on, on the street? That's a good question. I think uh, conservatively speaking, we're probably looking at two to three years, but uh, that depends on a lot of factors because that a lot of that is beyond our control. The uh, province eventually has to, uh, to uh, give the authorization, the official authorization. So far, uh, it's all been very encouraging because uh, the province has given the green light to get started on this project. It's a big project, and uh, but we're getting there. It is a big project. That is Wally Opal, of course, former attorney
0: general, former judge. He is the person who is chairing this transition committee. He's been appointed by the provincial government to just make sure that all of the T's get crossed, the I's get dotted, that this is done in a systematic way. And I have to say, when he says conservatively speaking, he thinks two to three years I'm thinking that's the kind of stuff that will not make Mayor Doug McCallum very happy because he wants this done sooner rather than later. And honestly, if you're a Surrey resident, you're thinking, well, is this going to be another two to three years. Does that mean that the RCMP, the current police force, stays in that holding pattern of not hiring any new officers for like another two years? Because I can see how a lot of residents in Surrey would find that unacceptable at this point. People who regularly ride transit, whether it's SkyTrain or the bus, will tell you that they do occasionally see uncomfortable things happen or worse, sometimes even a crime being committed. It's a sad fact of getting on the bus and on SkyTrain every single day. And I think that happens everywhere. But one particular moment last night for some people who were on the 99B line in Vancouver is really getting a lot of attention. There was quite the commotion that happened. So there was a witness to all of this, and his name is Edison Rosick. And our Claire Allen had a chance to talk to him. So we're going to let him tell the story here. He was on the Beeline bus eastbound when this whole commotion began. Have a listen.
2: So I was sitting on the uh, middle axle of the Beeline bus, and it was actually quite quiet for most of the ride. And it started off around Arbutus when... The bus driver got a uh, call from his dispatch radio, and then the next thing the passengers noticed was that he blew through the Granville stop without even flinching. So we, you know, I started kind of feeling that something was up, and I did, was hearing some voices somewhat raised at the back of the bus earlier, but it was relatively calm for most of the ride, so I didn't pay much attention to it.
0: Right, but that was the first kind of indication that something was not right. Edison says the bus then came to a full stop at Heather, and that's when things really took a dramatic turn.
2: A few moments later, we saw a transit supervisor come by and peek his head into the bus, and that's when I knew something was going on at the back. And uh, a few moments later, I saw that uh, three armed officers from transit police boarded the back of the bus and surrounded this very heavyset gentleman at the, at the back on the bench seat and had asked him to disembark. Um, the, the man refused to comply. So again, they said, you know, please come on, you know, you need to get off the bus with us right now. And so this man started getting up and as he get, uh, was getting up, he lunged for what appeared to be a female passenger on the bench opposite of him. That's when the officers grabbed him and the struggle began to ensue, I started filming at this point, and the next thing I knew was that the officers started screaming at him, uh, get off my weapon, get off my weapon, don't reach for my weapon. And this is when the video shows that the passengers started scrambling off the bus, and the next thing we knew as we were getting off is we are hearing one of the officers saying, he's got your gun, he's got your gun. And at that point, everyone got off the bus, and uh, within a few moments, the bus was swarmed by additional police officers, and as the video I submitted was uh, uh, showing that there was a continued commotion for quite some time.
0: That'd be pretty scary, right? You're riding the bus home and you see this all happening right in front of you. Now, when it comes to how the transit police dealt with the situation, Edison says he feels like it could have been better.
2: I I think that the response was actually somewhat lacking. and, And I say that because not because of the way they handled the suspect himself, but because they, um, overhearing witnesses later on, it turned out that they had arrived because someone used transit's uh, text-to-report feature to them, and um, apparently this was an exposing sexual assault, and I didn't know that. So the bus, uh, when the transit officers got on the bus, they should have known that this was a potentially dangerous situation and start evacuating the bus before approaching the suspect, and instead, three, all three officers focused on the suspect, and no one made any attempt at any time to tell people or passengers, get off the bus. So that's why people were, were caught off guard and surprised. So in that respect, I would say that transit police kind of mishandled the situation because people should have been evacuated before they started approaching the suspect.
0: Right. And I'm sure, though, everything unfolds so quickly, right, that you're just trying to deal with the situation as well. Now, when you see something like that, have it happen right there in front of you, obviously, like I think it would kind of leave you a bit shaken. I think that's what's happened to Edison here, too. He says that this whole situation has kind of
2: changed how he feels about transit. I, I actually take it every day to come to work to UBC, and today I'm actually driving in because I just didn't feel like taking the bus after what I saw yesterday.
0: I think that's understandable. Um, you know, a, a couple, it'll, take, it'll take time to get over that but I think that's happened probably to quite a few people. Now if you've seen something like that on transit or if you have a similar story to what Edison saw last night, you know, drop me an email. Send me at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331 buzz that is 331-2899. Have you ever injured yourself while you're on your cell phone? I mean, don't shake your head and think oh, that doesn't happen. There's a study out this week that shows it does happen and it happens way more often than we think. So the Authors analyzed 20 years of emergency room data and found that right around the time smartphones were introduced, injuries started to go up. What kinds of injuries? Well, that's what we're going to find out from one of the study's authors, Dr. Boris Pashkova of the Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, who joins us now. Well, Dr. Pashkover, thanks so much for joining us. I have to ask, first off, like, how does one study cell phone injuries to the face?
3: Uh, there's actually a pretty uh, simple, straightforward way of doing it. So, there's some, in the U.S., there's something called the NICE database. It's a National Electronic Injury Surveillance Survey based database where they pick out a select number of emergency rooms throughout the country. And basically, people in this, these emergency rooms, when someone comes in with an injury, um, they'll ask, how did this happen? Was it because of a scooter? Was it because of a phone? Was it because, you know, we're using a, you know, a, um, you know, a toddler bed, like all these things. So the reason for the database is to basically track like products because sometimes, you know, as you know, I don't know, you know, I've got two kids at home yep. that I know that, you know, there are certain things I used to put my kids to sleep in that are actually dangerous now and, and they're picked up by this database, right? Okay. So what we did was we looked at the database and we looked at whenever someone commented uh, had a, that their injury was related to their cell phone.
0: Okay, but and, what kinds of injuries are we talking about here?
3: we 're talking about you know so okay, so we 'll separate the injuries into two broad categories: one category being direct mechanical, and that 's when the phone falls in your face or something happens because of the phone, it explodes or blah blah blah, that type of stuff. The second more interesting part is cell phone associated, so that 's when someone comes in and says, "I was walking my phone, and a trip fell, and I broke my jaw."
0: <laughs> okay, okay, how common are these cuz like I couldn't believe in your study that they turned out to be even that common that people would admit to having that many injuries because of their cell phone.
3: Yeah, so you're right. I it's the wording you use is totally appropriate. People admit to it, right? So it's actually it's not that common. I think the amount of injuries over 20, uh, you know, that we calculated was something in the 70,000. Person range, but I, I I really think that's underreported because I think people are falling and tripping and not paying attention to their surroundings, or they're getting hit by a car, or something associated with them just not paying attention and they're on their cell phone and getting some sort of injury. I think it's happening way more often than we think.
0: Okay, so how many?
3: And I've seen many I've seen many patients with this actually. Have you really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had a patient who had a, dropped the phone on her face; she broke her nose. I had a patient who got hit by a car because he was on his phone and he got a broken jaw. Um, I've had a patient who fell and broke their jaw, um, it can happen.
0: Okay. And are they willing to admit that? I guess I wonder about that, Dr. (laughs) Prashko, that somebody would say, yeah, okay, I was talking on my phone and I tripped and fell, rather than just saying, I tripped and fell.
3: I, I honestly totally agree with you. I think it's, you know, people probably are hesitant to admit to these things. But they've admitted enough, and if you look at the study, the biggest real takeaway, if there's one thing I wanted people to know is look at figure one. Figure one of the study really shows that prior to 2007, we have a decade's worth of data that shows it was basically linear. It was a flat graph. The amount of injuries were pretty stable year over year. And then right around 2007, 2008, and 2009, we saw a huge, essentially, spike and year over year, constant increase in these injuries. And that coincides really well with the change in social behavior. The way we are with our phones, it used to be you used to use your phone as a phone. You used to make phone calls, right? Yeah. Nowadays, our phones are mobile platforms. They're, they're TVs. They're books. They're everything, right? So we basically around 2007, 2007 is when the iPhone came out, 2009 is when Samsung Galaxy came out. When these things came out, and not, not iPhone in particular, but just mobile smartphones as we know them nowadays. The way we use phones has changed. We're always looking at them. We're not really using them as phones anymore.
0: So you're saying we can actually track this from the stats, yeah. from, the, from the time that yep. smartphones came out, that you can see an increase in these types of injuries. Exactly. Which I guess if you'd told people that 20, 30 years ago you were going to be walking around as though you were reading a book, people would have thought you were crazy.
3: Crazy. You wouldn't cross the street reading a book, would you? You put the book down, but you're going to cross the street looking at your phone, reading an article. What's the difference?
0: Oh, my goodness. That is such a good point. That is so true. Why do we do this? Like, is it just distraction?
3: Yeah, I think it's just social behavior. I mean, the phones are constantly giving us feedback, constantly giving us, you know, positive things. It's interesting. It's it's stimulation. It's a constant stimulatory feedback loop. So we want these, like, things in front of us. And because we are constantly being stimulated with these things, we're... We're constantly on them. I mean, I, I grew up in Manhattan, in Manhattan, in the city, in, in Queens, and I go into, this, into the city proper, Manhattan, Manhattan, often, and everyone on the streets, uh, they're looking at their phone. They're crossing you know, Park Ave, and they're not even paying attention to what's around them.
0: So what are the most common injuries, then, that these emergency rooms see or that you saw?
3: So the most common injuries are lacerations, bruises, you know, cuts, scrapes, minor fractures. Those are more common because that's what's most common when you just trip and fall minor injuries. But they go all the way up to internal organ injuries, such as traumatic brain injuries, you know, concussions, uh, epidural hematomas, subdural hematomas, actual brain injuries.
0: So do you also feel then that these numbers are probably slightly underreported from the people who don't admit that they're on their
3: phone? Well, 100%. I think it's underreported for most reasons. I think some people don't admit it. I think some people who are really injured can't admit it. Um... And I think those two variables, I think it's way underreported. I mean, honestly, if you're crossing the street, you get hit by a car and you're you're on your phone the entire time, you're never going to admit that anywhere because any type of legal case you could ever consider, you know, going forward with would be thrown out of court. It's like, well, you were not paying attention to your surroundings.
0: And when you have seen these injuries yourself, Dr. Pashkova, like, do people express remorse? Do they go, man, I I can't believe this happened to me. I can't believe I was on my phone. Or do they just, that's just the way it goes?
3: No, they're just like, I can't believe I was on my phone and, I, you know, I tripped and fell and broke my jaw. It's, it's nuts. It is nuts.
0: Listen, thanks so much for talking to us about it.
3: No problem. Anytime.
0: It does seem kind of nuts, doesn't it? That's Dr. Boris Pashkover from the Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. You know, it's a very popular thing these days to dig deep into your family history and to learn more about those stories that you may not have known anything about. Now, sometimes when you do that, you find that a family member was tied into history in ways that you may never have even realized. That's what happened to Eleanor Sturko, a familiar name to many of us. She's a corporal with the Surrey RCMP. She is often the public face of that detachment. And She loves policing. Turns out, so did her great-uncle, a former RCMP member. But here's where her family history becomes part of Canadian history. Her great-uncle was purged from the RCMP back in 1964. Why? Because he was gay. And now Eleanor Sterko wants people to remember this remarkable man for who he actually was. And she joined us to talk about that search and that legacy. Well, Eleanor, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this. An
4: absolute pleasure to be here.
0: How did you get started? A lot of people like to go looking for family stories and family information, but how did you get started on this?
4: Well, how I got started with this particular project to republish my uncle's journal was that um, he was also a member of the RCMP, just like me, mm-hmm. um, also a member of the LGBT community, just like me. And But the difference was is that uh, he was part of what's known as the LGBT purge um, and was forced to resign from the RCMP in 1964. And by contrast, I'm currently uh, a spokesperson at Surrey RCMP. So um, a lot's changed. And I really became, uh, I guess, more interested in sort of a little bit deeper of what happened to my uncle after the prime minister's apology in 2017 for um, discrimination against the LGBT community. So I started doing some research, thought about writing uh, a book, which actually I have another project, right? but in the research that I was doing for that particular project, went to visit my um, Uncle Dave's brother, Jack, my great aunt and uncle, uh, Jack and Marnie, and stayed with them for a few days. And and during that time, he brought out this little journal that Dave had made for his parents during a time when he served actually in what we now know as Nunavut, sort of highlighting what his two years there was like. So he worked there actually for more than a decade, but this was, he first got to um, the Kikitalik region of Nunavut um, in 1950. So this little journal that he made sort of documents his time right from leaving Churchill, Manitoba on the CD how, and then getting to Pond Inlet, which was his first post These pictures
0: are un, un, un... And I hate using that word because it doesn't seem to give them justice, but they're unbelievable.
4: Yeah, they're great. And they you know, almost it's don't really... seem real because these are such amazing pictures of history. And what really... Well, and it's good that you bring up history because part of the thing that really blew my mind and made me realize how great it would be to be able to share this on a wider scale with people was that there's a particular photo in there of a man... Um, named Makpa, and he's. It says he's seventy years old, and that he had tuberculosis, and he was going to go down south um, for treatment. And this year, in twenty nineteen, the government of Canada issued a long overdue apology for exactly that—for for taking people out of the north and taking them down south for uh, away from family and stuff. So, I mean, here is a slice of history that you hear about, oh, and yeah. suddenly I—I I can you see a real person. And I feel very connected, and I. Broaden, sort of, not that I have a better understanding, but definitely it awakens you to like yeah. the fact that people lived this history that we hear about.
0: Tell me about your uncle, because he seems like quite a remarkable man. I mean, he was, as you say, purged from the RCMP in 1964. Was he out at that point? Or did that force him to come out?
4: That forced him out of the closet, for sure. Although, you know, one of the interesting things has been that even since I started this project and even since I actually did a couple of media interviews like back in 2017 talking about my uncle's story, and people from across the country have uh, contacted me because either they felt a personal connection in some way Mm. just to the story in general, um, were former members of the RCMP who um, wanted to talk to me about this period of time, or people that actually knew my uncle and It's been remarkable. A lot of people have said, you know what? We all knew and we loved him and respected him. But those were the times, you know, and so it's a lot different. It's almost hard for me in some ways to imagine this, like sitting where I am in this privileged yeah. time. And it wasn't that long ago either, It wasn't right? that long ago, but, you know, when I, I, I reflect on it and the more I've learned, it's like, wow, we really have come so far because I can hardly imagine today someone at my work saying, you're doing a great job and we really appreciate you, but um, time you got to go, go yeah. because of who you love. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's hard to imagine that, which is a good thing. And he, uh, he clearly loved what he did. Oh, yeah. He
0: detailed it so... And loved his uniform. I love the pictures <laughs> of him in the uniform And you as know what? Well.
4: I think his passion for Inuit culture was something that really defined his life. Um, you know, he was a very creative, sensitive person. He had a love of... Um, science and, and also um, the science of humans. You know, he loved to uh, sort of document in almost an anthropological study um, the things that he had seen and learned about um, the Inuit and it really defined who he was as a person. So, um, you know, in a time that was actually very impactful in terms of colonization in the north, he was a person who at the time was an early advocate for their culture and, and not wanting to see um, a destruction of what he saw as a very beautiful and useful part of Canada. So So you've
0: started, you've embarked on this because you want everybody to know who he is. Did you want him to be remembered for being that police officer and not because of what happened after?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, after learning more, so going to the apology and um, what it was for me, to be honest, was that I had met some other people who were Purged, you know, part right. mostly military members, a couple of people from the RCMP, but people who were part of that time and had not only survived but thrived, and had become activists, had brought attention to what had happened to discrimination, had in a lot of cases um, bravely, you know, gone to court against the government and, and helped fight for human rights and dignity, and um, you know, in a time where you know what a lot of people um, didn't survive. There yeah. were suicides, people whose lives were ruined, um, but I had met a lot of people who thrived and um, overcame obstacles and I found their stories very inspiring and to hear because to you know before I went to the Apology, I knew what had happened today, but I did not know all of the many of the intimate details and even as a person in the LGBT community, I didn't have um, a very deep awareness of what personally, had happened to individuals. I knew there was discrimination. stories, but... Right. And so connecting with those people who I will forever share a connection to, um, who I am deeply grateful that they've, you know, we've become friends, Um, but to hear some of their stories about how some people were interrogated, um, you know, many, many things that would really horrify you today, um, but were part of a normal process at the time. And so learning what happened to them and seeing, wow, that was like that's very shocking to me. Really, I was like, well, what happened exactly to Dave? You know, really, I want to know more. What
0: happened to him after then? Once he left the RCMP, um, what kind of a life did he build? What happened?
4: You know, um, my great uncle Jack, he, you know, I said, why didn't he go into anthropology or, or, you know, something like that? He's so brilliant. He clearly could have with the amount of research that he did. Yeah. And he loved it, you know, but, um, his answer simply was that it broke him. Oh. He um never really recovered fully. Like he he had a life afterwards, but he never had a career or a passion like the one that he had as a police officer and especially in his service in the north. And so, I mean, I think that was the case for many people um where your passion, imagine not being able to do I can't. Job, you do yeah, nada. I was you just know, thinking about if that. If someone took it away, it, it's it's like a part of your life. We do have a lot of identity each of us in the things that we do and accomplish. So I think that had a devastating effect on him. He uh, had some depression. You know, it created some problems within his relationships in the family. Um, he ended up going to San Francisco for a time, and I don't really know the reason why, but I I kind of believe he may have been looking for some acceptance um, to to be able to be maybe more free. Right. He ended up actually um, being beaten almost to death while he was there. He was—he had told his brother he was robbed. So I don't know if it had anything to do with uh, being homosexual or anything, but you know, he—he he certainly had not an easy go well, of it when no, he went. I was going to say, what an awful couple yeah, of years he must have had. Yeah, he had a rough go, and then he ended up moving to. Um, to houston texas uh where he was a manager at a ymca and uh he made lots of nice friends and and then became sick uh and then ultimately he was diagnosed with aids um became very ill returned to canada and and died in
0: 1988 you know your uncle's life is the kind of story that you just read about somewhere and so when you got all those details where you thought you must have just been floored by that
4: you know, I. It made me sad, of course, because you think about a person that had a lot of potential. Um, he, it's not uh, just you know a relative saying, hey, "Look how great my relative was." But there's so many documented yeah. things where I can, I really have that ability to to have a look inside and say, "You know what? This was an exceptional police officer, an exceptional human being, a very kind person," and I really didn't want the story to just end with his being expelled. I wanted to sort of have more of a legacy for him.
0: So the apology now that was given
4: Mm. for
0: those times and for those things that happened, does it resonate more with you now than it did a couple of years ago now that you've learned so much more about him?
4: Definitely. You know, um, and I think part of what's important about apologies um, is especially because they're written down for anyone to see, whether you heard it on television being broadcast or whether you were there or, you know, or whether you now get curious and go and, go on the internet. That's the beauty of the internet, right? You yes. can go read and if
0: it. If you're curious about this, you can do that. Yeah, yeah.
4: Or whatever the apology is, whether it's for the LGBT um, purge or whether it's for... Um, the relocation of Inuit or or any of the things that, um, you know, we have come to a form of reconciliation about, you can read it and understand what those apologies are about.
0: Well, they're about people.
4: Yeah, and, and about what happened to them and, and letting you understand more. And I think the apology opened a door for me, a window. Um, it let me, it opened an opportunity for me to have a discussion with my family, a discussion we'd never had. And... Um, it's very freeing and I have a deeper appreciation, I would say definitely for where we've come as a country. And um, I'm very proud, you know, like I, not of all all of our history is something that we, you know, you're not going to declare your pride in some of these things that have happened in the past, but I think they're important to acknowledge and important um, parts of being able to appreciate where we've come and how accepting actually we really are. And, this is a time where I think a lot of people, and I don't want to generalize or speak for others, but we've seen a divisiveness.
0: You could say might that. Be the 2019,
4: yes. the year of people feeling a bit divided, but we have so much in common, more so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the need to feel safe, the want of being accepted and being able to contribute equally. I think that's a very fundamental part of who we all are. So
0: I look forward to seeing this in book form I, and well, having you back look on look when that happens. to
4: sharing it with you. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me.
0: That is Corporal Eleanor Serko with the Surrey RCMP, but this was not an official visit that she made to us. This was to talk about the legacy of her great-uncle, who was also an RCMP officer but was purged from the force in 1964 uh, for being gay. And yes, that did happen. It was one of the reasons why an apology was issued by the Prime Minister in 2017 because it happened to quite a few people uh, back then. Now, if you're walking around uh, the area of Richards and Smythe in downtown and Vancouver, you're probably seeing the billboards that have been promoting a new park. And this new park is supposed to be replacing a parking lot in the area. So you think, okay, well, that's pretty good, right? A park for the residents who live in around there. There should actually be some movement on this early next week. Both the Vancouver Park Board and Vancouver City Council are expected to move forward by awarding that contract to a company to make that park happen. But the price tag is what's raising a lot of eyebrows at this point. It's gone up. The original price tag that was associated with this, the estimate was about $8 million for this park. Now, something like $14 million. Also questions about that. To talk more about that, we're joined now by Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councilors, who at the time that this park was brought forward to the park board was on the park board and was chair. Thank you very much for being with us. Hi, so, so what is the deal with this park? What is so unique about it? Uh, well, I think this park has
5: been in the making for a long time. The land was acquired back in the early 2000s, if I've got the date right. Um, and so these things typically take a, a long time, a lot longer than we would like to deliver. Um, and the idea at the time was to deliver a park, um, sort of high-level concept, and it was purchased. It was a lot. It had, it had buildings on it. It had to be deconstructed. And, and then in the short interim, it became a parking lot. Um, but it's not uncommon when... Um, you're looking at a park to put a budget allocation towards something. um, And that's before a vision or a design has been done for the actual park. So when the park went out to do consultation on this project and asked a lot of folks what it was they wanted to see in the park, um, they really looked at the fact it's in an urban environment. um, You've got a limited lot size. They want to take advantage of vertical space. And so it's quite a complex design. It has a cantilevered walkway and a coffee kiosk, and the idea is that it has a number of different areas that people can find some quiet time and space in, um, and a playground. So it's trying to provide a lot of amenities, um, some trees and some plants and shade and all those things. So um, when they got into the design, that's typically when you get into detailed costing, um, and then that's where you see a variance grow from there. I think the other thing that happened is that uh, over the years, between the original idea to do a park and when you get to the construction contract tendering, which is happening now, the construction costs in our city have been going up about 6% a year. Um, so that also contributes to a variation as well.
0: Right. I mean, that's a pretty pricey park, though, when you look at it. The original cost, $8 million, and now we're looking at what? Something like $14 million?
5: Well, keep it in mind, like, it costs around, we're doing a new community center at uh, Marple. Um, that one's being renewed. That's the oldest community center in the city. It was built in 1949. So that's around 45, $40, $42 million. Um, there's a proposal to build a, an outdoor pool there, um, which they used to have one back in the day. That costs around $50 million. So public amenities and infrastructure are not inexpensive. If there is a big variance in cost, I think we have to be really careful about use of those dollars and ask why. And are we, are we estimating? Do we need to get better at estimating? Are there other reasons for it? Um, but I think that investment in public amenities is one of the best things that we can do uh, because it provides a lot of benefit for a lot of residents.
0: Uh, are there? Uh, I think in the downtown area, there would be a lot of complaints that there aren't enough parks already. Is this one going to fill that need?
5: Uh, well, I, that was part of the intent. So when when the city started acquiring land sort of back in the late 90s, um, it really was a recognition that downtown was growing dramatically, not just in, for residents but people working there. And so it is designed to take off, really provide some much-needed additional space and take pressure off some of the other local parks like Nelson Park and Emory Barnes Park, which are really, really busy places.
0: Is this becoming increasingly challenging, though, for the Park Board and for City Council? Is it when we densify these areas, like an urban area like downtown Vancouver, people still want their green space? How do you provide that?
5: Well, I mean, I think that that really comes down to society making choices and saying this is still important to us. I'm a huge proponent of livability. And so we talk all the time, and and rightly so, about housing and affordability in our city. But you can't just build and put people in, in boxes. Like, you need to give them quality of life and provide these places for people to gather, especially when we're living in taller buildings and people don't have green space and neighbours the same way. So I think it's hugely important, and that's why these spaces, um, we need to prioritize them and we need to make sure we have them. If you think about it, of the overall landmass in the city of Vancouver, only 11% is park space, but 25% of um, our space is taken up by roadways. So if you look at it in that context... Mm-hmm. It it's not a it's not a a large percentage of the overall space we have in the city.
0: So what is the timeline like then for to make this happen?
5: Well I think that uh, I think the report to the board says that uh, they'll hope, hoping to wear the contract down um, construction will take approximately a year to complete. In my experience it sometimes takes a bit longer, so I'd probably put money on more in like 18
0: months,
5: <laughs> if I had to guess, okay. Just based on past experience. But I think you could see that park opening in 2021.
0: Right. Now, part of this was being covered as well by some development that had happened as well. So how much is the city actually paying for this?
5: Actually, all of it would be covered. And that's the other thing I don't think that people realize is it's not coming from general tax revenue. It was paid for by a develop- DCL or development uh, cost levy. Um, and then uh, the additional um, cost would come from a downtown south General citywide or a specific area, uh, sort of DCL as well. So it's coming from developer contributions to support growth and make sure we have new amenities. So it doesn't come from general tax revenue. And if the city didn't, or park didn't spend this money, it can't be reallocated, for example, to reduce general taxes because when those dollars are collected, they are earmarked for specific uses and the legislation requires that. So they must go to parks or to childcare.
0: Right. So about a year and a half and we should be able to see this thing up and running.
5: I would be really excited to see it up and running. I think it's an innovative design, and I think Vancouver needs to dream big sometimes and push the envelope, and we deserve great public spaces.
0: All right, we'll see about that one. All right, Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Don't no great talking to you. That is Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councillor. Before that, she was on the park board, uh, and this park was part of that process that she helped to oversee. It has been in the works now for almost 10 years. 2011 was when it was first proposed, and this is a pretty interesting new green space that they are going to be uh, building at Richards & Smythe in downtown Vancouver. Right now, it is a parking lot, uh, but the signs are up to show that there is a park coming there. And if you take a look at some of the pictures, you'd go, well, that's... That's an interesting park. It's going to be one of those things. I almost hesitate to use the word. It's going to be pretty Instagrammable when they finally get it up and running. When I saw the pictures, I thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be a popular spot for people. So hopefully they'll get that done soon because that area could certainly use some more green space. My understanding is something like 30,000 people live within a five-minute walk of that potential new park, so yeah, they could certainly use that green space. We'll have more for you right now on the 72-hour strike notice that has been issued by SkyTrain Union representatives to the BC Rapid Transit Company. So according to the release from QP7000, talks are still in progress. The Union is supposed to have an update at 11 o'clock tomorrow, but you know we've just gotten over and through one transit strike, are we now facing another? For more on this, we are joined now by Tony Rabella, who's the QP 7000 president. Thank you very much for being here.
6: Thanks for having me, Simi.
0: How did we get to this point?
6: Uh, Well, we've had uh, four days of mediation and uh, we've had very little progress at the table.
0: Now, that was quite a lot. There were a lot of hopes last time that I spoke to you that there was going to be mediation, there was going to be more bargaining going on. Has there been any movement at all?
6: Like I said, there's been very, very little movement, but our key issues are still not being addressed, and our members have told us uh, what we need to do, and that's why we've served the 72-hour strike notice this morning.
0: And what are the key issues? Our key issues are still our our wages, our forced
6: overtime, our staffing levels, our trades adjustment language, and among some other other issues.
0: All right. So, what happens then with 72-hour strike notice? Are we talking about everybody being off the job, or how is this going to work?
6: So, we're going to let everybody know tomorrow morning at around eleven. Uh, on what we're going to do for job action. Uh, right now, we're still still here at at the labor relations board in mediation, and uh, we're still committed on trying to get a deal done. So we've cleared our whole weekend to get a deal done. Still.
0: So you're hopeful.
6: I'm always hopeful, Simi. Uh, but it's up to the and like I've said before with you, it's it's up to the company to take us serious, and uh, hopefully they they understand that. Our members are, are serious and ready to do what we need to do to get a fair deal done.
0: Now, do you feel that you haven't been taken seriously up until now? What is the relationship like?
6: Well, we we have a pretty good relationship, but we feel that uh, at the table, just some of the key issues haven't really been addressed. And those things need to be addressed for our members to vote on a good contract.
0: All right. How many people are we talking about here? Like, What kind of disruption potentially, Tony, could this be?
6: Uh, well, you know, about 370,000 people take our system every day so that, you know, when, when we announce what we're going to do for job action tomorrow, um, everyone will know exactly where, where we'll be at.
0: Okay. So between now, though, and 11 a.m. tomorrow, the negotiations, the talks, they do continue.
6: They do continue, yes. Uh, we've been very clear with the employer. We're, we are still here. We want to bargain. We want to get a deal done. Um, but we felt we needed to serve the 72 hours notice.
0: All right. Thank you very much for your time on this.
6: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: You too. That's Tony Rabello. He's a QP Seven Thousand president. These are the people who work on SkyTrain. SkyTrain maintenance people. They have just issued seventy-two hour strike notice to the BC Rapid Transit Company. Well, more and more people have been talking about this next story the last few weeks, and clearly it is a big problem for so many businesses out there. It has to do with the apparent increase in the number of thefts, even violence when it comes to shoplifting, that local businesses are having to endure at their premises. So how bad is it? Well, we're joined now by Terry Smith, who's the Executive Director of the Robson Street Business Improvement Association. Terry, thank you for being with us.
7: Thank you for having me. Is this something that you've heard more and more about? Absolutely. Uh, We are definitely hearing from our businesses along Robson Street that Shoplifting has become extremely rampant. And when I mean frequent, I'm talking on a daily basis, multiple times a day. And it's, it's becoming very concerning.
0: What was the timeline like for that? Like, is that something that happened this year or earlier this year?
7: No, shoplifting has always been an issue. Um, it's one of the top concerns of our members um, regularly. However, it just seems that this year in particular has been really really bad and this I'm dating it back to about February when I started hearing a lot of our businesses coming to me and explaining what they were experiencing on a daily basis and the amount of loss that is happening from the stores and talking about thousands of dollars a day that they're seeing um, in relation to loss due to shoplifting. Right. And how are these stores dealing with that? What are they doing? <laughs> well um Unfortunately there isn't too much that can be done uh, there are some deterrent tactics some of them have hired um, security guards to to be in the store at the at the front um, some have their own internal loss prevention um, uh, programs in place out of head office and then they run their programs throughout the stores we've also been involved with our members and um, we've been Setting up some internal communication channels where we're able to alert, um, businesses are able to alert each other of any sort of prolific fen- uh, offenders that they see on the street or if an incident has just happened, they can give the heads up to the other stores that, you know, be on the lookout. Um, we've also run some, you know, shoplifting workshops with our members just to give them some tips and crime prevention information. But I mean, at the end of the day, there's not a lot of consequences. And a lot of this is being driven by drug addiction. And it it's really bad. At yeah. the moment. So what kind of role has Vancouver
0: police played in all this? Because when they were asked about it, they said they haven't really heard very much about this.
7: I think part of the problem is because of how rampant it is, the businesses do not have the time to be reporting every single incident. And so a lot of this goes underreported. But with that said, I mean, we work very closely with the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, We work closely with our neighbourhood policing office. uh, And they've been very proactive on it. Uh, We've got two great officers. They come and they they show their their presence on the street they pop into the businesses Uh, so that that does help Um, I think the biggest concern for our businesses is just the diminished sense of security and safety that they have within their stores and for their employees
0: like what are they able to do though because I understand like with legal liabilities there's only so much you can do if you even catch somebody red-handed with it
7: yeah, and the other the other part of it, when we're talking about Robson Street, there's a lot of um national and international brands. So policy is set at head office level. So a lot of it is no touch policy. So I mean if something happens <laughs> they they can't intervene and the person just is able to walk out the door. Um and that's that's very common amongst yeah. our stores and even even if there were different policies, we would never encourage um, anyone to to try and intervene or run after anybody that's that's putting themselves in an un, un, unsafe place, and and we wouldn't uh, want that to happen again Ter- when we're dealing with the mental health and the the addiction issues. Right. So Terry, is it the
0: type of shoplifting different as well? Like, is it more brazen? Is it more of a, you know, is, are people trying to hide the stuff as they're stealing it, or how is this being done?
7: <laughs> I actually watched footage of one happening the other day, and and the guy just walked right in, opened up a bag, and. Took items off the display and turned around and walked out. That's so it. it's it's very brazen. They, there's no consequences attached with the shoplifting, so there, there's no deterrent right now, and and that's a big problem. And I think we really need to be looking at the province and them stepping in, and because the police can only do so much, they can lay charges, but once those charges are laid, it goes over to Crown Council and it's in their their court.
0: Right. What would you like to see happen then? What do you think needs to happen in order to change
7: this? Uh, well, I definitely think the, the consequences, there needs to be some some stricter consequences. And of course, when we're dealing with mental health and addiction, there's a whole other complexity to it. So where are the, the necessary services that are in place to help these individuals to get them into a better place? I think a lot of it falls to funding and to accessing the appropriate services needed.
0: You talked about workshops that have you've been running for businesses, like what kind of tips do you give the businesses? How can they uh, prevent this or even mitigate this?
7: It's very challenging again, because we're dealing with people that are just coming in and and taking um in broad daylight with somebody standing right there uh, but some of it comes down to um, obviously great customer service, making sure the that individual knows that people are watching um also, store layout and design is very important. So looking at where you're putting certain items, where your staff is located, making sure you've got people close to the door. Don't put high, high-priced high items close to the door. Um, so things like that, little things like that can help. But unfortunately, I mean, you're always going to have specific offenders right. that are going to do it regardless. And
0: are, are they crimes of opportunity sometimes, do you think, Terry? Like if all that stuff is right by the door? that is uh more tempting than if that if the more expensive stuff was kind of deeper in the store.
7: It's it certainly can be, but I mean we do have a lot of well-known shoplifters in the area. So they're coming, they know what they're doing. They're targeting certain stores. So I mean it's part of it, but I would say there's there's a lot of uh just these are like lifetime sort of shoplifters and they know what they're doing and they right. come and they yeah but how
0: frustrating then so are
7: you hearing this from all areas of downtown vancouver um yeah so we represent the robson street um area which is between Burrard and jervis the main sort of shopping area but uh, we do work very closely with our our neighbor bias like the downtown vancouver bia the west end bia um actually we co-hosted a workshop with them so yeah it's it's not just us. It is happening downtown wide and I imagine it's happening, you know, throughout Metro Vancouver. All right, Terry, listen, thank you very much for talking to us about it. Yes, thank you for having me. That is Terry
0: Smith, Executive Director of the Robson Street Business Improvement Association. At this time of year, we spend a lot of time, you know, shopping, buying gifts for the people we love, but not everybody is able to do that. And that is why as part of, you know, a lot of people for their regular kind of Christmas and holiday traditions, you like to reach out and perhaps help out other people as well. And there is a way for you to do that. If you've been wondering, you know, who can I help? What can I do? We have some help for you on that front right now. We're talking with Lisa Waring, who's the executive director of the Surrey Christmas Bureau. And Lisa, thanks for being with us.
8: Oh, thanks for having me, Simi. really appreciate the call. Well, anything that we can do
0: to help at this time of year, tell me what are things like right now at the Christmas Bureau?
8: Incredibly busy. We have over 1,700 families registered. That includes, uh, 3,500 children plus 1,200 teenagers. We are not finished registration yet, and we are already 200 uh, children over the number of children that we served last year. Ooh,
0: and you've still got some time to go, don't you?
8: Yes, we do. We're not quite finished our registration process. We're already handing out toys. Uh, We have been handing out toys since November the 27th, and our stock is becoming rather alarmingly low.
0: What have you noticed, like, difference-wise, Lisa, between this year versus other years?
8: Well, we're seeing a lot of large families that are are, are suffering and, and needing help. Um, we're also seeing, you know, as always, we always have a great difficulty with teenage gifts. Um, teenagers are notoriously hard to buy for. I know I've raised four of them. And if you ask them what they like for Christmas, they usually get a shrug and an I don't know. <laughs> but they love gift cards. They definitely love having a package under the tree. So we are in uh, in need of, of gifts for teens, of gift cards for teens. And we're also rather alarmingly low on uh, on gifts for girls age 9 to 12.
0: So the families that you're seeing as well, are these people who are working and they're just having trouble getting by? Or, or what are the circumstances?
8: It's quite a variety of circumstances. We see a lot of, of the low-income, working poor um, that are just having great difficulty making ends meet. The cost of living in the lower mainland is extremely high. And for families who are earning minimum wage or thereabouts, it's, it's all they can do just to make sure they're able to pay the rent and keep the lights on. There's nothing extra for Christmas. Uh, and of course, we here in Surrey, we have a fairly large refugee population as well. So we have a lot of new Canadian families that are just settling in that are coming to us for help.
0: And you've been doing this for a lot of years, haven't you?
8: Yes, this is my third season with the Surrey Christmas Bureau.
0: Right. And have you noticed changes in that time?
8: Well, I do see an increase in the, in the, in the number of families every single year. Last year was the first year that we surpassed the 2000 family mark, and I, I am... Uh, Uh, predicting that we'll, we'll exceed that again this year. Um, I'm also seeing a lot of parents that are really, really stressed. They're very relieved to get the toys for their children. But one of the things that they really need help with is that, um, that putting that special meal on the table. And that's why we give every family that we serve a grocery gift card that is sufficient for breakfast, lunch, and dinner on Christmas Day.
0: All right. So then what can people do to help out, Lisa, if they, if they want to give, give? How do they do that and what do they do?
8: Well, they can come on down to our Toy Depot. We're located in the old Stardust building across from Surrey Central SkyTrain. The address is 10240 City Parkway. They can bring a new unwrapped toy down to us there, and we would love to help them out by giving them a tax receipt in return. Just make sure you bring your receipts. They can also donate online via our website, which is www.christmasbureau.com.
0: Right. So when you talked about that, let's go over one more time, though, the things that you really need. You said you've already been handing out toys, so it sounds like those shelves are uh, running a little low.
8: The shelves are definitely running low. We've been handing out toys uh, since November the 27th. We uh, see about 85 families come through and shop for toys in our depot per day. So the, the stock that we had to start off off, us off for the year is pretty much depleted. So if you've got toy drives going at your business, the best time to get them to us is now. We need to fill those shelves. We never, ever, ever want to see any family looking at the shelves and seeing only one or two or three toys on the shelf.
0: Okay, so they can drop that off at the at the uh, Surrey
8: Christmas Bureau? Yes, at the Toy Depot, 10240 City Parkway. The financial donations are also very welcome. Our budget uh, annually for those grocery gift cards is about $150,000 a year. And it is being stretched uh, past that max this year. So any help we can get there would be greatly appreciated as well. And that can be done on our website.
0: Right. So that's where the cash goes, right? So if people donate money, then they should know that goes towards the groceries.
8: That goes 100% goes to the groceries. You bet. We, and we have extended our buying power. We have uh, worked with our partner at Save On Foods to give us a bulk purchasing discount on those grocery gift cards.
0: Okay, that's good to know. So then, what are the what are your deadlines coming up here, Lisa?
8: Well, we our our last day of toy distribution is December the twenty first. So uh, any toys that are being collected need to definitely come in before that date. Financial donations can be uh, given to us all year. We actually have many people who have very generously signed up to become monthly donors, which is greatly appreciated as well. And our hours of operation are Monday through Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. down at our Toy Depot. All
0: right. Listen, Lisa, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very
8: much for having me, Sammy. Have a
0: great day. You too, and good luck. That's Lisa Waring, the Executive Director of the Surrey Christmas Bureau.